Before we get this episode started, we wanted to remind you guys to rate and review our podcast. Yeah, guys, this is how people find out about this podcast. We are discussing some very important topics, which we really do not see being discussed today, especially in the field of nutrition and dietetics. So if you guys can definitely remember to rate and also review and get the word out about nutrition lifestyles, we'll appreciate that. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Nutrition Lifestyles. I'm Kim. And I'm Joanne. So today, we got a hot topic for you guys. And if you hear any cooing in the background, it's our third co-host, Jalen. <laughs> right there. Right. So I know there's a lot of you out there who are going to relate to this topic. And for the rest, this will surely be a learning experience. So you guys know I'm originally from Haiti. And coming into a new country is very tough for anyone, and especially a young child. So when I got here, I was in elementary school, and I have pretty much been code switching since then. Um, When I first got here, I didn't fit in with the black kids, the African-American kids. Um, I didn't fit in with the white kids. My mannerism was different. How I spoke was different. And I had to learn to fit in to each group. Mm -hmm. And then when I got home, I had to speak a certain way at home. So basically, I had to switch how I spoke with my black friends, my white friends, and my parents. So I've been co-switching for a long time. What about you, Kim? So yeah, I definitely understand what you mean. And if you guys don't know what code switching is, just hold on. Continue to stay with us. We're going to let you know what it means. So I'm an immigrant as well. You guys know that I'm from Jamaica. And I actually had not realized until like a couple months ago that I've been code switching. It wasn't until Joanne brought up the topic to me and I'm like, what? Code what? Code who? Switch what? (laughs) So I have been code switching all my life as well. And you guys can actually hear Joanne and I code switching all throughout our podcast. Like we do it often, like we turn it on and we turn it off. And let me tell you, it's an art as well as a science. Mm -hmm. And I even realized that I code switch with my clients as well as patients, which you'll hear later on in this podcast. So as a black woman in a professional setting, I feel like we always are having to watch our tone and also to make sure that, you know, we're not tagged as the angry black woman woman. So code switching is very important. It's an important skill for survival. This is so true. And I do the same thing with my clients and my patients. I I, I code switch also. And it's something, it's an art, like you said, something that we've learned to do throughout the years. So today our guest is Melanie Calhoun, who is a senior consultant with expertise in marketing management and diversity and inclusion in- initiatives. So She has interest in work culture and environments, and what she does is she helps organizations improve their diversity and inclusion strategies by conducting assessments, helping to establish clear and measurable diversity and inclusion goals. So I met Melanie on one of my favorite podcasts, shout out to the Wild Black podcast crew, where she was a guest host and she interviewed me on all things nutrition for the Black culture. I then went and I listened to her interview on this specific topic, and I knew we had to have her on here and relate this topic back to nutrition and health. So welcome to Nutrition Lifestyles, Melanie. Hey, thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. 
So Melanie, so that our audience knows a little bit more about you, go ahead and give us just like a quick rundown of who you are, where you came from, the things that you saw, et cetera. Sure, absolutely. Um, So I am Melanie Calhoun and I started um, this journey, um, I guess I can take it all the way back to (laughs) how I grew up and then that will lead to kind of why I'm interested in what I'm doing now. So Mm -hmm. I grew up in a suburb of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which was a predominantly white area. And there were three black kids in my high school graduating class of about 300. So coming in an environment where I wasn't reaffirmed and having to kind of assimilate into culture, white culture, I um, was extremely unhappy with it because I didn't want to do that. But I also didn't have a a large black network because I just didn't live anywhere near anybody. Mm. So from there, I went to Florida A&M, which is a historically black college and university. And that was a life-changing experience for me. I recommend going to an HBCU for all black people. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but I understand that might not be for everyone. But for me, helping me develop my black identity, that was that was one of the key components of it was being around and being reaffirmed by black people in an, in an, in a very inclusive environment. Right. And so from there I got an MBA in marketing and I just started working in corporate America. So from Tallahassee, Florida, FAMU's campus, I moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota, which was basically a similar (laughs) environment where I was prior to going to FAMU, which is a predominantly white um, area. But in a corporate setting, I started, I began my journey as a marketing executive and I stayed there for about, well, stayed in marketing for about 15 years. And some of the challenges that I had throughout my time in corporate America were, you know, microaggressions and Mm -hmm. issues because I was the youngest, the only black person, the only woman, the single, like that was the environment. I was in a medical device field, which was very male, middle-aged white man dominated. And so from there, I I got burned out. Um, I moved around the country with these positions and then eventually landed myself in the Bay Area of California. And I left corporate America and started researching racism and bias at University of California, Berkeley. So when I went to UC Berkeley, I worked in their psychology, social psychology department. Um, And in the lab, I actually did EEG studies on what happens to our brain when we are marginalized communities in all white environments. And so I started, it was just such an interest and a passion of mine. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, I wanted to put like a name to what I was experiencing. And so I began um, my time there at Berkeley as a researcher And from there, I developed my consultancy practice. Um, I also spent some time at a company um, that was a full-time kind of uh, marketing and management consulting firm, which I still am affiliated with now. So I continue to do diversity, equity, inclusion, capturing the stories and the experiences of Um, marginalized communities, people of color, Black people in particular. Um, Mm -hmm. And then also a lot, I I do a lot of work with um, immigrant Americans and some of the challenges that immigrants face. And with that, I help work environments become uh, much more welcoming and 
from a policy perspective, right? So a lot of these companies don't even have any type of goals around diversity and inclusion, or they may not even have any, um, you know, any resources for people who may be in these environments. And a lot of times they're very unhealthy environments. And so from there, I have just been spending my time kind of basically trying to get, uh, I guess I would say in a, in a nutshell, I try to get the majority population to try to treat and and (laughs) the minority population better. And that could be all sorts of diversity, not just racial and ethnicity, but, um, you know, gender diversity, there's all sorts of types of diversity that we know about. So that's kind of my professional, um, journey (laughs) and why I'm here today and, and why I do the work that I do. You know, Melanie, let me just say this. You are my shiro. (laughs) (laughs) you really are um you know going from fam you to to the burbs and then you know circling back around to california i mean you have really left a mark on it and an impact in the work that you were doing to bring a voice to the marginalized societies. Right. Um, I wanted to say, you know, at FAMU, because Joanne and I, we both went to college in Tallahassee, but we went to the, excuse me, the other university. <laughs> we're not going to say what it is, but for those of you from Tallahassee. Oh, please. It's a great school too. <laughs> it is. It is it a is great school. school. Um, but I definitely feel at FAMU, the times that I personally did go over there, there, it was just a different culture. It was a different way of speaking. It was a different way of acting. Um, and I wanted to, to ask you this question because I remember Joanne asked me this question. I'm like, what is that? And Joanne was like, Kim, you do it every day and you don't know what it is. (laughs) So basically, Joanne asked me, what is code switching? And I want to ask you that same question. What is it? Okay, so from like a definition perspective, so it would be, I guess I'm trying to say it as simply as possible, like in linguistics and language, it is basically being... Uh, multilingual, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe multilingual, but you may only speak one language, right? So there's multiple ways that you can speak language. And then, so code switching by definition would be if you have a dialect or if you use certain language in one environment, you may use a different uh, linguistics kind of um, accent or anything, anything in a different environment that you would switch. And so now code switching has really ex, um, expanded to include behaviors. And so a lot of times when we're talking about code switching, it's really around this mask that we wear mm-hmm. when we cannot be our true and authentic selves when we go in certain environments. Mm-hmm. So for example, I may not use the same language or accent if I'm in on FAMU's campus or if I were in church or when I'm at work, we all have kind of different personas that we create based off of what is pretty much acceptable, right? Acceptable behaviors in corporate America when I'm surrounded by all white people, mm-hmm. it looks a little bit different than if I'm on the set FAMU, you know, hanging out with my friends. And I mm-hmm. think everybody code switches to an extent. Right. Um, I use the example of two of my father who was um, from Charleston, South Carolina. And if you've heard the Charleston, South Carolina accent, 
you would know immediately it has um, a very unique sound than say how I would hear him speak on a regular basis. So even when he was around us, his family, when he would get on the phone with his sister or his brother, I would hear a completely different <laughs> accent come out. It was like, it, it, it's, it's amazing to watch someone just so effortlessly switch back and forth. And then when he gets on the phone with his work colleagues, which, you know, he worked in um, a, a corporate environment that was predominantly white and male, he had a very different sound when he talked to them too. And so code switching to me, particularly with black people, it's, it's a form of assimilation, right? It's a, it's a form of survival. It's a skill that the children who are learning how to speak English, and if they learn to speak English in, say, an African-American dialect, they will have a harder time code switching when they're older. But if you, say, learn traditional American English, meaning, you know, talking white is what a lot of people would call it, um, you would be able to code switch a little bit easier. And, you know, the funny thing is, um, you know, Kim and I are both um, immigrants. I'm originally from Haiti, so I'm Haitian American. I came here at seven. And when I got here, I pretty much started learning to code switch. So I had the white friends because we went the area we lived in, um, the schools were predominantly white at, at first. And so I had white friends and then I had the black friends. I didn't fit in with them all the way and I didn't fit in with the white crew all the way either. And then my mom and dad had a certain way they wanted us to speak in the house. So we couldn't bring ever bring the street talk. So I often say that I'm a chameleon, like I can change it up wherever you put me. I can sw switch it up because that's what I've learned in the last 30 or so years since I've been here is code switching so I can make the other person more comfortable. So I want to ask you, Melanie, do you think it's important for our survival as black professionals to code switch? Well, that's a pretty loaded question. <laughs> I would say, is it, I think for survival, I think, well, take a step back. So if you think about from a social psychology perspective, mm -hmm. people do this regardless of background, right? You can see someone who, I, the way I'm speaking right now, and then let me spend two weeks in England. Mm -hmm. There'll be things that I'll slightly say just because I'm around it and you fit it. Like it's like our natural you know, makeup will, will want us to assimilate not in a bad way, but just because you start picking up things from what you hear around you. And so I don't think it's, I don't, I, I want to say that we are trying to get to a place of where companies in particular are trying to become more inclusive and they want you to show up as your authentic self. And so they say, but there's also a price that you'll pay depending on that environment. So you might be at a company that's um, owned by a Haitian American. And guess what? You could be your completely authentic self when you're in that environment. And nobody will think anything of it. Where, you know, someone like me coming in who isn't Haitian American or have, have, have Haitian in my background coming mm -hmm. into that company naturally I will want to fit in with who's around me. Right. So you, I may start to pick up some things. I don't know if it's so much so that black Americans uh, need to 
assimilate or code switch for survival mm-hmm. as it is. You know the the environment that you're in is less forgiving for Black people. And you know, uh, something else that I wanted to add on, you know, piggyback on that. The other day I was speaking to a patient, two patients actually, the first one was Caucasian and the other one was African-American. And I I text Joanne and I realized the way that I was speaking in the Caucasian room was very different from when I started. (laughs) And I think, you know, as Black professionals, in order to get our point across, depending on who we're speaking to, in order to, you know, especially, you know, Joanne and I, we work in a clinical setting, in order to make sure that the client or the patient that we're counseling is understanding our message, Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we have to make sure that we are on their, um, you know, we're, we're, we're communicating in a manner that they do mm-hmm. understand. Uh, so with that, I say that all to say, do you think that code switching is an art that we as black professionals or even people that have people of color, because I know Spanglish is a thing too. <laughs> do you think that code switching is an art that people need to, to keep? I, I think that yes, because if you're, for the example that you gave, if you're trying to convey a thought or you're trying to get a point across, things will get lost in translation, even if it is the same language, right? And so right. not to say that you have to do anything different, but similar to marketing, which is my background, you want to you wanna position things in a way that's appealing to the t- intended target. Right. And so especially in the work that you do, you may have hey, you may have um, to uh, position your message so that it could be absorbed the right way by the intended audience. So I want to I would say it's definitely an art. It's kind of like, you know, charisma or um, mm. interpersonal skill. It's like, how do you connect with somebody? And a lot of times people will go towards connecting with them by acting like them or sounding like them. That's kind of like the quickest way to connect. So how does diversity, how does code switching, excuse me, work with diversity and inclusion? So I'm thinking to myself, if a company that is majority white is um, trying to be more diverse, do you think they would hire someone who, based on their ability to adapt to the environment more so than somebody who comes in more as their authentic self? Um, Absolutely. So this is the problem that we're having right now. And this is why I have a job. Um, (laughs) So companies, what they actually think they want. So in in theory, they want diversity, but they don't want diversity in thought. Right. Mm -hmm. So they don't really actually want diversity. And this is what I have. I spend a lot of my time trying to explain. It's that well, you know, black people aren't applying for these jobs. And so how do we get more black people to apply? It's kind of like maybe the, their take. Uh-huh. Um, but what they don't realize is how toxic their environment is for black people, particularly black Americans, right? Mm-hmm. So you might come in and say, okay, I'm willing to work in this environment, but you have then this thing called microaggressions that happen, right? There's all these slights or unintended consequences of being different in an environment that's predominantly homogenous. So um, it's hard to say that these companies 
really truly want diversity, they oftentimes diversity initiatives come because of a lawsuit um, or reaction. Um, they have a Kindle or whatever Jenner Pepsi moment, or they have a um, what was an an H and M moment. They'll have these moments where they you know completely flop publicly. Mm. Uh, and then they want to do something to to make it better. Usually, if there's if they don't think it's a problem, they don't have anything to fix. So usually, there's a problem. Somebody sues, or you have an issue with attrition. Right? All the black people, or you know, whoever people of color. I'll include um, you know just underrepresented minorities. You'll have an uh, a few of them there, but they can't keep. They won't stay. There's always an exit. It's like, well, we, we keep trying and they'll, they'll even co- go to FAMU to recruit the business students, right? That's, we're targeting all of these black MBAs and we'll go to Howard and we get these people in, but then we can't keep them or they want too much money. And so, you know, it's just this, it's not a fit. They'll say it's not a cultural fit. Um, and I think part of that is what's, what's hurting is that we as marginalized community members are expected to truly assimilate, but then also not reinforce negative stereotypes against us, right? So we as, say, you know, Black women, there's a lot of negative anti-Black women stereotypes that are out there. We're angry, we're irrational, mm-hmm. or we're loud. Or, so then you're constantly, as you're in this environment, subconsciously what we are doing is trying to make sure that we don't reaffirm any of those negative stereotypes about us. And then on the other side of it, it's how do we make sure that our message is met in the right way? And it's like, so it's how much of it is the company's expectation of us. And then how Mm. much of it is us that we're doing it ourselves because of negative stereotypes that we're not trying to affirm. It is a lot. And you know what? I, I all I think that I'm always trying to make the other person comfortable. Mm-hmm. I'm always trying to make them feel comfortable so they don't think that I am that angry black woman or I'm this ghetto chick that's coming in or that they made a good decision in hiring me because I will fit in. I think that this is what I've been doing in my past. Mm-hmm. I think right. so for me too. And I think that the more and more people are removing their masks, Mm-hmm. The, it's it's typically because we know that black people are the biggest employers of black people, right? Mm-hmm. So smaller, small or independent businesses, a lot of people are going out and stepping out on their own and becoming entrepreneurs. And that way you get to be what you want. And I think the shift from moving towards you graduate, you go into a corporate job and you stay there for 25 years or 30 years like the my parents' generation has completely shifted to now, I'll stay here for two years, get what I need to get so that I can actually have my side hustle blow up. I'm just doing this so that I learn the tricks of the trade so that I can create my own. And so I'm hearing a lot more younger people, not only do they have multiple forms of income and hustles, that part of their reason for even going into corporate America is just so that I can learn, pay these bills until I can blow up on my own stuff. (laughs) That's true. And, you know, something that you mentioned in regards to, you know, going to black campuses and recruiting 
minorities Mm -hmm. of color to work in marketing, something just occurred to me, you know, just switching it up a bit. So on a previous podcast episode, Joanne and I mentioned something about body positivity and how the white culture has Mm. been used for the longest time to be a measure of what a healthy body is supposed to look like. But then all of a sudden, you know, you have these marketing gurus now who Mm. make some white women, when they undergo the knife, not calling any names, have, you know, the full lips and and the curvy hips and, and, you know, the big butt. So what do you think about this? Don't you think it's kind of like a, you know, I don't want to to plant any seeds. I don't want to plant any seeds in your mind, but I'm like, okay, you want to take one aspect of the black culture, but then leave the rest behind. Uh, That's exactly what happens. (laughs) That's exactly (laughs) what they do. And um, they, they, them and they, they (laughs) would love to have even our music, our art, our culture, Mm -hmm. because we are amazing and awesome. And that's kind of I mean, we are the people who create culture and shift mm-hmm. culture, right? Um, from every aspect, the arts, you know. So I think about how we have this, like you said, the healthy body image. It's mm-hmm. still based off of, I mean, if you look at you know, a lot of marketing campaigns, they're still around, you know, European kind of standards. And although there is a shift kind of behind the scenes or even, you know, you have some reality TV stars who have now become like major multi-billion dollar empires based Mm -hmm. off of, you know, and taking black culture and and colonizing it, so to speak, (laughs) (laughs) taking it for their own. Um, I think that... I think that what I really, really want to see, though, for for what is a healthy body, particularly within our community, outside of what happens out there, is that we define it for ourselves and that we get to a place of what's healthy for us. Right. You know, if, uh, you know, if you look at our our beautiful shapes and sizes and skin tones and all of these things that are evident in our in our history and in our culture, uh, the Eurocentric standards would tell us that we're wrong with how we are. Mm-hmm. But what I would like for us to do is figure out what is best and what is healthiest for us. And I love what this podcast is doing and what you're doing to help move that forward. Because when you, if you just look at BMIs or if you just look at you know statistics, it says you know Black women are... I think, what is it, like 60% or 70% are overweight or obese. Mm-hmm. Um, from this, I guess that was from a CDC uh, study. Uh, mm-hmm. And so when you think about that, it's like, okay, well, what does that mean for us? And how, does, how, what, how are we actually healthy within ourselves? Because genetically, there's some things that are just happening. We're going to have hips. We're going to have things that maybe are not um, commonplace for those measuring standards that are used and placed on us. And so what is actually healthy body and what does that look like for us? And I want us to define it. I totally agree with that. I mean, we've often um, talked about previously how the people who come up with these measurements are not, they don't even look like us. So they're not going to include what we look like and what is deemed as, um, you know, the right category to be healthy or what BMI is supposed to look like to be healthy or whatnot. So, you know, it's an ongoing battle that we have. Um, So specifically in our field of dietetics, Kim and I 
you know, are the minorities. And 15% of dietitians are dietitians of color. And out of the whole overall dietitians that there are all over the world, I think it is, Kim, or is it just the United States? Just the U.S. Just the U.S. We make 2.6% of all dietitians, um, Black dietitians do. And so I want to ask you, what advice would you give us minorities in this field to make it, like to, you know, I, I don't know if I want to say battle, the to be on the battleground, but what advice do you have for minorities, for people who are in, who are in a field where they are the minorities and they're trying to be included. Ooh. So my initial thing is move to Atlanta. <laughs> Let, me Let me, we're full. No, uh, no, no, no. Come on down. I would say for being, I think about my experience in where I was being oftentimes that two or whatever percent in most of the places where I've, where I've been. Right. And so when I think about how, in nutrition and um, diet uh, as dietitians and how, how few of dietitians are actually black. I feel like, how are you, are you able to, to step out on your own and actually target, use your target demographic, be us, right? How can you help us? Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's such an untapped market because a lot of us don't even know about dietetics. They don't, we don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like what I would, this is, this is Melanie talking. This isn't like the, <laughs> the DNI professional that's going to say, oh, here's how you survive in an environment like this. Mm -hmm. the, the Melanie that's like the counselor Melanie would say, I want you to not only step out on your own, I want you to step out on your own and target us as your demographic, mm -hmm. create campaigns, go into our communities. And there's enough of us to have a long standing and very proper, prosperous business. And then I'd also say, how can you mentor other people to get into your field? Right mm -hmm. now, if you look at what's happening with therapy for black girls and how now more black women now are getting psychotherapy than ever before. Mm -hmm. And a lot of black women are the face of that. And why? It's because we're, we're actually there helping ourselves. And the field of um, counseling or with black psychiatrists, black psychologists, it's necessary for people to get into that field right now because it's still, it's growing so fast that there's not enough of us to even meet the demand within our own community. And so I would say mirror that and you see how uh, even with what you're doing with your podcast is getting your message out. I would continue to do that. And then how else can we, like, what other things can we do? Right. Exactly. And that's exactly what Kim and I thought when we were creating this podcast is that we are the minorities and we've seen, you know, podcasts done before and um, different platforms use their knowledge to get to the people, but we haven't seen a lot of us doing it and um, making it for us. And we're not saying that we don't want everyone else to listen to our podcast. We just want to make a lot of our um, episodes focus on our community so that, you know, the people who are out there who are in our community get the information on a more um, understandable level because we understand us better than anyone else. So so while we're on the topic of us, let, let's speak about, in my opinion, which is like the elephant in the room. 
So, you know, we've had some colleagues who have been asked by their subordinates to, you know, fix your hair. You know, I remember one time uh, someone, uh, a co-worker said to me, oh, Kim, you know, did, did you put your finger in a, a electric outlet this morning? And I'm like, oh, OK, what are you talking about? Because I know I was going to take it to HR. Mm-hmm. I just knew So, you know, I'm guessing that, you know, these individuals felt that our hair, our unprocessed hair as black women in a professional setting may not have been acceptable. So do you think that we'll ever come to a time where we're not forced to tone down our hair because, you know, it makes us who we are? Yeah, that's still a debate that I mean, that's still going on and on and on. And you see it happening with dress codes, even in the military or in schools and all of it, like how we are in California, they just passed that there's you cannot discriminate somebody based on their hair, Hmm. which is like now you get to do what you want. And that stems from a lot of those issues where black people, particularly black children in schools, have been told that they need to wear their hair a certain way. Mm-hmm. So I think I love what California, the state of California has done, which just happened, I think like a month ago, where now they, it is a form of discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the to- toning down of our black authentic selves is, it, I, I want to like, I, I, and, and I guess what I would say is, wear your hair and wear it, wear it, wear it, but also be prepared. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like be prepared. So I didn't really start wearing my hair naturally until I got out of corporate America. Like I, I would straighten it. Right. So it was, it was styled in a way that was deemed acceptable. I would wear Mm -hmm. extensions or even some braids, but it wasn't something that would draw attention to myself where now I'm like, Oh, I'm going to have this Big puff, I'm gonna have the biggest puff. I'm gonna do whatever I want, and I love it. But I also am now not in that environment. But I think mm-hmm. that if I'm if I'm honest with myself, could I have done it there? The answer is yes. I just would have had to be prepared for the right battle. So when right. when those microaggressions happen, I can't be surprised because we know they're gonna happen. Right. Now, am I armed with the right language to use to push back? Like I wish somebody would tell me that I, I stuck my finger. In the light bucket, <laughs> because I would really make it sound. I, I would. I'm, I'm at the. I'm more of an aggressor now. When mm-hmm. I was in the environment all of the time, I was very. I think they broke me down. They really they wore me down and broke me down to where I just didn't want to rock the boat. I just wanted to come in, put my head down, and do my work and leave. The Melanie who has been out of that scene for a while got a couple more years on me. A little bit more confidence about the expertise that I bring. Right now, I walk into these companies with all of the hair that I have and tell them how to run it so that they're more inclusive. Mm-hmm. So I teach companies now about microaggressions. I do, I mean, even like there's a service organization that is one of my biggest clients. Um, it's a, I'm, I'm, we won't call it by name, but it's a service organization, over 130,000 members worldwide, and it's 86% white women, Right. So this organization has black people in it. And one of the projects that I did for them when I was working was like, oh, well, we have this issue and we're trying to figure out the attrition. I said, okay, well, what we need to do is do a little assessment and research around what's actually happening to your members. It's not even a, we, we can't find black members to come in 
it's not, you say that, but it's like, okay, well, let's talk about the black, let's talk to the black members who are there and let's talk to them about their experience. And so I did a series of 40 plus interviews and some of these interviews went hours. I mean, people on the phone with me crying about their experience as a black woman in this environment. I also talked to Jewish women. I talked to Latina and both, um, Asian women and immigrant mm-hmm. Americans and what their experience was like in this, in these environments. Mm-hmm. And one of the common themes was microaggressions. And so what I did was I built a microaggressions training, not just a one one here's what microaggressions are. The training that I created was specifically around this, the actual stories of their own people. So when I go into these companies now, it's not a, here's an off the shelf training on microaggressions. No, here's what people in your organization are currently dealing with. And this is their reality. Do you even know this? Hmm. So then I can go in and say, here, you look at my hair. Do you know how many people used to touch my hair when I was in these companies? So let's talk about how that's, you know, how that makes me feel. And so I'm using, because I'm able to use real life examples of their actual stories with internal stories, Mm -hmm. they're more prone and likely to listen. And they're trying to do things that are a little bit more inclusive now. Is it going to change overnight? No. Does it slightly move the needle? Yes. And so I, I, I would really say that, no, don't tone down your hair, but be prepared to battle. Yeah, it's true, especially with the uh, be prepared to battle part, because I know there's some days where I just want to unapologetically just rock my fro to work. So there are days that I do do that. And when I do see patients, you know, some of them say to me, OK, you know, I'm ready for my diet order to be taken. And then I have to kindly correct them. Mm-hmm. No, I am, I am not the server. I am not uh-huh. going to be the one. I'm your dietitian. This is what my job does. And they just stand back and they look at me. And then they mention, like, I don't know why they do this all the time. Some Michelle Obama <laughs> initiative. And I'm just like, okay, that has nothing to do with why I'm here. But definitely, um, you know, for our listeners out there who are natural, and are women of color, definitely be prepared for the consequences. And also be prepared to have the, you know, you can use the time to teach. I mean, a lot right. of a lot of the fascination with black hair is really just around curiosity. It's like, oh, wow, can I touch it? I'm like, no, that's <laughs> like, no, I actually don't want you to touch my hair. Do you want, can I touch yours? Mm-hmm. And then, then they'll look at me like, why would you want to touch mine? You know, so I think part of the, conversations that are that you can have as the natural girls because as I am one now um I I think that you just have to be in the mood to either teach or push back or call out Mm. so that's my battle it's like sometimes Mm -hmm. I'm in the sometimes I'm feeling feisty and you know somebody calls me the wrong name which used to happen all the time and sometimes I'll say, no, I'm the other black girl <laughs> with a straight up attitude, like look on my face. That's like, you got it twisted. And then sometimes <laughs> I'm like, well, no, you know, people do that all the time, you know, it's depending on my mood. Right. I think I'm more the aggressor now, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend, but <laughs> I just, it, it, to me, it feels better. Like that's the, the counselor in me is like, what is going to make you feel better? How are you going to live your truth? And sometimes mm-hmm. it's, no, don't touch my hair. Have you, did you know that that's a real issue in the, with black women? You know that, you know, and, and then that could be your teaching. You know what, as you've asked to touch my hair, that's something that happens to a lot of black women and it's very frustrating. 
mm-hmm. because I'm not your petting zoo. And I feel like because my hair is different than yours, you feel like you have the right to just put your fingers in it. And that's right. not cool. So it's like, it depends on what you're in the mood for. A lot of times I'm in the mood to be like, kind of, you know, flip a little bit. And then sometimes I'm like, okay, let me give you the historical context because a lot of it, oh my gosh, I didn't know. I'm like, yeah, you can Google. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of information out there. I know you probably haven't had a need to Google, but I want you to Google this and see the stories that you can find. And then we'll talk a little bit more if you want. Oh, Okay. And then, you know, so that battle, you have to pick, pick the battle that you want and battle in the way that you feel um, happiest and healthiest. I think I'm a little bit like you now. I'm a little bit more on the um, sassy side than I used to be <laughs> when I'm responding. I think I've, I've grown a backbone. And it, it also helps that I do, I, I'm, I, you know, I don't technically work for anyone. I work for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I go into clinical settings and I do consulting, but um, I really have my own business. So I have my own, you know, I make my own decisions. There's no one saying this is the dress code. This is how you need to be. Of course, I'm professional. Of course, I dress professionally, but my hair does not look straight at all. It is all kinds of Afrocentric when whatever I want to do, I do to it. And I'm not as afraid as I used to be as, you know, to someone telling me um, that's not appropriate or this is not what our company represents or something of that nature. So I've seen minority celebrities say this all the time that they've um, over the years, they've had um, specific actors or actresses of African-American um, descent who are like the token person that different, well, whomever makes the decision in Hollywood chooses to get the the movies or the, the parts or whatnot. So they choose the one person, that's the person over the years that you see is like on the come up. And so even within our field and within other fields, I would say you'll see that um, a specific person um, where companies are trying to say that they're 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 including people or they're trying to increase their diversity and inclusion. So they'll select one person and you can kind of see like that person's like the token black girl that they're choosing. So what advice would you give to companies who are trying to increase their diversity? You know, when they're selecting or making their company more diverse to do it in a matter where people are not seen as like that's the token black girl that they've chosen yeah unfortunately that's kind of the tough you know it's like kind of how the cookie crumbles a lot of times when companies will start and will go through the even if even if it wasn't a quote diversity and inclusion hire people Mm -hmm. will accuse them that there's a woman um, named Brenda Major who is a social scientist out of UC Santa Barbara and one of in some of her research she talks about how um, companies that have diversity initiatives will have white men feeling like reverse discrimination is happening or, you know, mm-hmm. feeling as if um, diversity issues and or, or diversity initiatives would actually target white men. It makes them feel uncomfortable. And they are the majority of most of these places, right? And in, in all of the leadership, if you look at the board, the, the C-suite down, <laughs> most of these positions are taken by people who are predominantly in control and in the majority of our, in, in, in our country. Mm-hmm. But still having these diversity initiatives would make them feel like that Black girl coming in is a token Black girl and they will treat her as such. 
Right. And so I guess my recommendations that I would give a company and how they are, how they're increasing, it's to be completely honest about where they are in their diversity, equity, and inclusion journey. Like that self-assessment is the first, the first thing I would tell any company to do is before you decide to say you want something, let's talk about who you are today. Mm. And, and, and let's sit with that for a minute. So let's, it, your company has 87% white and in your, in a hundred percent of your senior managers and above or director level and above are white and maybe one, you know, Asian man or something, you know? So mm-hmm. I would have these conversations. We would actually look at these numbers and say, okay, so what is it that you're trying to accomplish? And let's be honest about it. And a lot of they, they fight about having honest conversations. A lot of them don't want to acknowledge who they are and what they are trying to become. And so in their approaches to hiring black people or wanting to have a diverse pool to choose from, it's be honest with who you are. If you want a black girl to come in and not rock the boat, but just to be a darker skin complected person (laughs) and, and assimilate and completely fit in with everything that they have, there are black girls and women out there who are happy to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I would say they have to be completely honest about who they're trying to pick and why they're trying to pick them. And if you really want diversity of thought, it might not look and act like you currently are. And from there, it's how, what are you going to put in place to support somebody like this and making sure that they're not the only person? Do they have a mentor? Is there, is there someone in senior management who can mentor this, this person? Mm-hmm. You don't have any black senior managers. Okay. So who is it? Because one of the times when I was in corporate America, I was the most senior black person in the company and I was a director. I was not like a VP and they had a mentorship kind of for, for women. And they particularly tried to develop one for black women and in, in, in marginalized communities. So that of course they didn't ask me to be a mentor. Mm-hmm. They asked the black um, administrative assistant to the C was it to the chief, um, uh, to, to the general counsel, the general counsel had a black administrative assistant and they said she should be your mentor. Wow. Now, mind you, I have an MBA, I'm mm-hmm. in marketing, I'm a professional, and this is the path that I'm on. And you have now said that my mentor should be because she's black and she's more seasoned and she's been at the company for a while. And they tried to convince me, Oh, she's got so much access. I'm like, no, she's not staying in the meetings. She's ordering the lunch for the meetings. And so no, I don't like, they don't have any idea. They're like, well, what, what, what do you mean? That's not a good mentor for you. Like you have to really, really know as a black woman going or Latina going into these environments, your battle. A lot of these companies are not really interested in diversity and inclusion. They're not. So what do you really want to do and what do you expect to get from it? Because what they will do is they'll make you the chief diversity officer. They love to have a black person as a chief diversity officer. They will put you there. They'll put you in HR, but they're not going to put you over finance, engineering or marketing or anything Mm -hmm. that like is a rep sales that's going to drive your revenue of your business, but they will put you in a softer diversity. Oh, you could head up diversity recruitment, or you could be the chief diversity officer, but not give you a meaningful budget and not give you any, and, and, and no one is accountable to you. It's right. just, you know, that, so that's, 
the problem that a lot of companies are having now, even as they are looking to, to bring in and selecting um, Black women, is that they don't even realize who they are to begin mm-hmm. with and what they actually want. Do you really? So what is diversity even? How do you define it? Let's mm-hmm. define it. Let's talk about what diversity is for your organization. Sure, you have a mission statement. Okay, let's grab that. You have, you know, you have a little line in there that you said that you, this is who you want to be. But like, what does that actually look like in practice? And so I'll go through and, and walk through their, their actual numbers, how their, um, how their people are, you know, do you have a nutrition issue? Uh, what do your suppliers look like, right? Like, how are you using other minority businesses in your business or do you not do that? Is it just that, you know, you have all these black people, but is it just because they are um, at the lowest level of it, of, you know, pay grade, you know, you'll have a black mailman and that's, mm-hmm. you know, and you're like, Oh, but we have a plant in Puerto Rico. And so that is, we have, so we don't have a diversity issue. We have a plan. I'm like, you don't have any professional people down there, but you have a plant. So you feel like, okay, well we have a thousand, you know, Latino uh, employees. So now you feel like you don't have a diversity issue. Let's talk about what this actually means though. And what that means for a path to leadership to senior management in this company. So those are the kind of conversations that I have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And most of the time they bring me in because there was a lawsuit. (laughs) Most of the time it's a reaction. So I said, which act, which sucks that that's the reason why they're bringing you in because they're trying to cover themselves. That's it. Or yeah. Or they've had to pay and they don't want to deal with that again, or they have to show corrective measures. I'm telling you, most of these people do not want to, they want to make as much money as possible with as least Mm -hmm. issues as they can. They're not here to try to make black people feel comfortable. They want to have who they went to college with, who was in their fraternities. They want their friends and they put their friends on. That's, I mean, in in a way, that's what we as black people will do too. So we just need to grow our businesses and have more of us. And I think that's why everybody needs to move to Atlanta. Let me stop. (laughs) (laughs) I say that all the time. Move to Atlanta, guys. What y'all talking about? Move to Atlanta. I I think part of it is because they're so, I mean, you think about what's happening. We have, it's not, it's like the power that black people have in Atlanta is Mm -hmm. really something special. Not just because we, we got the mayor, we, we keep getting the mayor. But if you look across the board, like black people in business, you got in film, you know, Mm -hmm. you have, (laughs) you have, you have a reason to come here. Right. Um, And part of that is you want to be your true and authentic self. And you can do that when you're with black companies or, you know, I say black companies, but there are plenty of places that are at least used to black people, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're here, you come work for Delta or Chick-fil-A, there's going to be black people there and they're used to black people. Mm-hmm. Where if you go, like I was in Minneapolis, <laughs> they weren't really used to black people mm-hmm. at the company that I worked with. Um, and, and when I was in the Bay, I worked at a, um, a company <laughs> and where, I, like I said, I was the most senior black person at that company. And it's like, there's 3,000 employees here and I'm the most senior black person. Hmm. It was just like, okay, yeah, this company is not really for me. Mm -hmm. And I go to where I'm appreciated and celebrated and loved. And so that's why I'm in Atlanta. Right. (laughs) And because California got to be too expensive. (laughs) (laughs) 
and you know, for me, I don't know about you guys. I don't want anyone selecting me because they're trying to diversify their company. I want you to select me because of my skills. You know, I'm educated. I speak three languages. Like, select me for my skills, not for the color of my skin or because you're trying to make your company look good. Right. right. But if you say, if you are that black person that does, you better get as much money and mm-hmm. as much as you can from them. Like, if that's what, if this is your temporary move, get as much money as you can, get whatever you can get from it and move on and start your own. Exactly. Very true. Exactly. And then build, build up the community right after that. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So Melanie, I wanted to know, so for our audience out there, I'm pretty sure that there's people that want to connect with you. Cause I remember when I listened to you on wild black, I'm like, where is she on social media? I know you're on LinkedIn. Are you on any other social media platform? <laughs> uh, I privately, I haven't. You know, I'm I'm low key. I really am. And you know, what? I will say that my mother. I was talking to her about this. She said, "Don't cuss on this one like you did on the other podcast." <laughs> so I told my mom. I said I wasn't going. I was. I would be able to share this one, unlike the last one, because I used a little language in the last one. <laughs> But yeah, so I'm not really out there. Um, I yeah, I'm not. But you if you want to, uh, I you know what I I should. But I'm at like I'm busy in my capacity. Right, I think I that's the thing. I'm like when I get a team, <laughs> I would love to do that. Um, but right now, like yes, you can find me. I do have it on LinkedIn. If you need to find me, you can find me. And then if you want my services, if you're listening and you have a company and you want me to come talk to you, I am available to do that. Um, Yes. Awesome. So Melanie, we want to thank you so much for being on our podcast, you know, just taking everything into consideration that you said and applying it to our field, who is only 2.6% of us are black women. You know, we do have we do have some battles that we do need to fight. We really do. And it may not necessarily be for our generation, but for the generations after and those right behind us um, coming into the field and also into just the American society in general. So in closing, we want to encourage you guys to go ahead and share this podcast episode. It's not often that we're going to get someone like Melanie who has been there and is experienced Mm -hmm. in this realm of microaggressions and code switching and what you need to do as a person of color and also companies reach out to her. We thank you all for listening and remember to give us five stars and also leave a comment in the comment section. Thank you once again and have a good day. Bye everyone. Bye.